looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, Tim, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good, Dante. How about you? How about yourself? Doing great. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. We, we appreciate you. Um, you know, you and I, we, we built a little bit of a relationship through online, just like I think everyone has in this last year, two years um, of life, You using social media, using, you know, different investor groups to connect. And you and I connected as we operate in fairly similar markets and uh, hopefully to potentially do some business here in the future. But if you don't mind introducing yourself, Tim, and telling our audience a little bit about you. Yeah. Hey, uh, Tim Best, Harvest Properties Group, um, actually located kind of uh, near uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, just north of there near the, uh, in the Lake Norman area. A um, little bit about myself. Um, been uh, been doing real estate in some form or fashion since about 2006. Uh, originally got into kind of doing land development, um, buying uh, raw land, uh, working with developers to bring it to market for, uh, for the general consumer. Uh, got out of that in about 2018, 2008, 2009, was kind of forced out of it by the market crash. Um, pivoted it over into uh, single family, uh, fix and flips, that kind of thing. Uh, about 2018, sold off the portfolio and, uh, and uh, decided to move into multifamily. Um, so uh, around 2018, 2019, made a transition into multifamily and have been doing that ever since. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we definitely connected because we're both in the multifamily space. So talk to us about that transition into multifamily. So you're doing raw land development, you're doing some flips, like you said, for a few years, and then you, you sold off everything and you really started to move into the multifamily. What made that transition happen? And I believe you said 2018, correct? Yeah. So around 2018, and, and by the way, hindsight being 2020, uh, you know, kind of wish I would have held on to those single families till this past year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, would have doubled my money. Um, but hey, uh, so yeah, around 2018, started to kind of look at things and, and you, you know, I'm not going to say anything that's like earth shattering here. I think folks have heard this before from, from plenty of other people realized with the single family piece that I had created another job for myself. Right. Um, and rather than, you know, creating something that I could build and scale, um, you know, I never, I never wanted to work in it. I wanted to work around it kind of, uh, or on it. Um, so I, you know, I had built something that I was a hundred percent needed for that. I wasn't scaling very well. Um, I'd started to run up against my ability to do things with my own money, my own credit. Um, so I started to look for places where that wasn't as big of an issue. Um, and, and I could scale faster with partners and, uh, multifamily lends itself very well to that. And it was a natural transition because, you know, you're dealing with tenants, um, you know, a single family, you're dealing with tenants under a single roof. Um, you know, in multifamily, you're dealing with multiple tenants under a single or a couple of roofs on a, on a single asset. Um, so there were a lot of pieces that carried over. Um, and it just made sense to make a transition uh, there and leverage some of the experience I'd gained from, um, you know, renovations on fix and flips and, and for uh, renting to, to an individual. 
Yeah, I'm guessing most of our audience that, that comes at us is probably people that are more interested about learning more about what we do and how do we get into this. And so appreciate the discussion on the transition. Take us through it. I think it's always interesting to hear about people's first deal. So your first multifamily deal, what did it look like? So first multifamily deal that I got in um, was actually as a passive investor. Um, the The reason for that is, you know, I, I, I wanted to know what I didn't know. Um, so, you know, I had some of my own capital said, one of the ways I wanted to, to learn is to invest in something. And, and, you know, I talked to that, uh, that syndicator, that general partner about, Hey, I'm going to invest, but I want to be able to kind of be a fly on the wall, if you will. Uh, so invested in a deal in, uh, Alabama, um, 42 unit property and, you know, was able to, to kind of see how they took the property down, see how they go about, you know, financing, um, business plan, and then go about the execution of that business plan. Um, so that was my, my first deal was actually as a passive investor as an LP as it's commonly called. And uh, how'd you find this indicator? So obviously, you know, you have 506B, some private offerings, you have 506C, more public where you, you know, you can advertise the mass, but how did you find this exact syndicator on your first deal? So oddly enough, uh, through social media, through online, um, uh, this was, this was a time when things were starting to get tied down again due to COVID. Um, so I, uh, I spent some time networking with people and, uh, in a weird kind of way, I uh, came across somebody who that, uh, had reached out to me to help me, uh, build a, a broader network for my own deals. And in that conversation, he was like, Hey, let me introduce you to this guy down in Alabama that I talked to. Um, so I'd been looking for my first deal to invest in myself. And I'd been looking at a number of different syndicators, um, and vetting them and kind of going through their backgrounds and stuff. Um, had a long conversation with this guy, had a, had a number of conversations with this guy, uh, looked into his partnership team, did a lot of vetting. Um, and, uh, was really kind of down between him and two other syndicators, uh, the deals that they had at the time and, and chose this one largely because of, uh, one of his partner's backgrounds and then, uh, location of the deal. So proximity of the deal. Um, the other deal I was looking at was in Houston and one of the other deals I was looking at was in Houston. Uh, oil was not doing very well at the time. I had some doubts about um, the market just due to that. Um, so I decided to uh, stay a little bit closer to home and, uh, and stay on the little closer to the East coast and went with Alabama. Yeah. Well thought through, uh, with regard to the bigger market. Uh, it's one of the things I actually like about Charlotte. So you mentioned you're in Charlotte, uh, you know, to me, we've seen it's a very diverse job market here. Yeah. Do you see the same thing? In Charlotte, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of folks, a lot of folks look at Charlotte and they think about it as financial center, which it absolutely is. But even from the financial side, it's very diverse. There's a ton of financial industry here, but then at the same time, there's a lot of medical here. Um, there's a number of universities here as well, um, and then uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of tech uh, surrounding Charlotte as well. Um, you know, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Uh, the RTP area gets a lot of credit for its technology, but Charlotte actually has quite a bit of that as well. 
Yeah, and I actually uh, relocated here because of an engineering position that I held. Uh, and our focus was uh, chemical process industry. So okay. a lot, lot of chemical pr- plants in the area too. This is a, a big center, both North as well as uh, South Carolina, just over the border. A lot of stuff going on there. So, um, yeah. of course, we all know about the the BMW plant too out in nearby Greenville, Spartanburg. So, yeah. Southeast is certainly doing well. So, you went into this Alabama investment, and uh, you went in as an LP. Um, was it a larger deal, smaller deal? How many units were involved? Forty-two. Forty-two okay. units. So, so yeah. So that's pretty neat because on a smaller deal like that, you can actually have that interaction. Whereas if you're in a 300 unit deal, you're probably just a small piece and maybe you don't get that interaction. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And in fact, um, the, the next deal that I did get into, uh, came about, uh, I decided to go ahead and put my, uh, fundraising capital raising chops to the test. Um, and, uh, the first GP deal I got into was, uh, primarily from the fundraising side, you know, I do some boots on the ground stuff as well, but, um, and that was a much larger deal. So as an LP in that deal, I would have never gotten what, you know, to, to your point, I would have never gotten that, that access. Um, but, uh, as a GP on the fundraising side, you know, I do, I do have some visibility into that one. Um, so yeah. So now is that basically so you can get into these deals as a gp certainly by finding the deal like you had mentioned bringing capital which is a i think a great way to do it uh is, is that basically what you're doing now is that what you've evolved into uh no those were those were kind of learning experiences if you will you know i want to do i wanted to fill my way through the process um i quite honestly i never i never look to bring investor money into something that I haven't done myself and I'm not familiar with. So, you know, on the LP side, investing my own money and learning some of the multifamily ins and outs. Um, and then going into uh, the GP side, you know, capital raising after I'd learned some of those ins and outs. And now I've, uh, now I'm doing much more on the GP side, much broader. I'm actually underwriting. I'm actually finding the deals. Um, I do a lot of boots on the ground for my partnership team. Um, so a ton of, uh, ton in the space with asset management, which actually lends pretty well to my background from the single family piece, um, where I really tend to do very well for, and what I bring to the table with, with my team is primarily around the asset management piece and then execution on the business plan. Um, I know the, I know the Southeast extremely well lived here my entire life. And, you know, I'm, I'm, for some reason, I seem to have a knack of being able to show up on a property and kind of see potential or places that we need to, things that need to be addressed. Um, and, and I do a pretty good job with that. So going back to that first deal you did as a GP where you came on, you really helped bring, you know, bring some capital to the deal. How did you uh, get presented the opportunity? Was it any GP that you already worked with? Did you build a relationship with them or, or what did that all look like? So as a GP, I was familiar with uh, through some mastermind groups that we were we were in. Um, uh, met him that way, um, and I, I was familiar with the team behind him. I wasn't as familiar with the lead GP on the deal as much as I was with, with the other partners in the deal. Um, but because of you know their, I have a lot of trust with those those partners, and if they're partnering with somebody, um, it, it, they've done their due diligence. 
Right, so. right. Yeah. And th- today, what does that look like for you guys? What are you guys chasing after? What kind of deals are you looking for? And are there certain markets that you're honed in on? Yeah, so we definitely are honed in on uh, things in the Southeast. Um, we're looking to expand our presence in the Richmond, Virginia market. Market. I know some people argue if that that's not actually Southeast, but you know, certainly close enough. Um, so Richmond, Virginia market's a market that we're honed in on. Um, would love to do things in the Charlotte and Raleigh markets, although they're very, very tight and tough. Um, but congrats to you guys because you guys are doing something in this Charlotte MSA um, right now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. A um, um, little bit jealous on that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're highly focused on, you know, you mentioned Greenville, South Carolina. So Greenville, Spartanburg, South Carolina area, Columbia, South Carolina, where we just closed on something about two weeks ago. And then down into the uh, Charleston MSA, going up into Somerville in that area. So, uh, in terms of size of units, if I if I was a broker and you were to give me some guidance on your buying criteria, how would you lay that out? Yeah. Uh, so, if you were a broker and you were asking me what I was looking for, um, I would give you a kind of a generic, you know, hey, twenty to twenty to seventy units is kind of our sweet spot. Um, although we're starting to try to expand beyond that 70 unit number. Um, but 20 to 70 units is our sweet spot. Um, and what I tend to tell brokers is, Hey, I know the Southeast really well, so don't limit me on location. Just if it's 20 to 70 and it makes sense, send it to me and I'll decide, um, on, you know, where we want to buy. Um, so that's, that. Sure. What we go for. So that, that kind of gives us a sense of size. What about, you know, in terms of asset class, value add, distressed, what, what are you hunting for there? Good point. Um, our sweet spot's B class. That's where we really like to focus. Now we'll look at C class. If there's a C class to B class transition, um, you know, you mentioned value add. Um, our property in Somerville is a really, really good example of that. Um, there's a strong need and a lack of B-class properties in that area. So we have a C-class that we're, uh, that we have that, uh, you know, is going to lend itself well to transitioning into a B. So from a value add standpoint, um, we, we look at anything in the C-class range that we can bring up to a B. We are currently looking at a few A-class properties, but that's not our sweet spot. Um, B-class is, is definitely where we focus. So if you acquire uh, a 50 or 70 unit B class, what's the business plan then? Yeah, typically the business plan there is uh, we, try to fi- we try to find underperforming B class properties where there's either some you know, management opportunities on it um, or you know, it's, uh, it's been owned for a while. It's, the rents are under market. It just needs some renovations to, to get it back to that really solid B class asset cl- uh, asset. And, uh, and we go in that way. So we'll look to do renovations, raise rents, cut expenses, or, or look for places to be more efficient with expenses. Um, that tends to be the general, the general business plan. And for like building your book of business for investors, how are you guys going about that right now? What would you say? Well, I guess it's kind of a twofold question. So what is your investor type? So the, the type of investors that are coming to your deal what type of investors are they? Are they working professionals? Are they people that want to be involved? And then how are you guys going to build that investor database? Yeah. So we really don't close the door on any type of investor. Um, you know, the, obviously the sweet spot is, 
is folks who are who are who are in W two jobs who want to get into real estate but don't necessarily want to actively manage real estate. Um, so you know we're looking for that. You know, uh, typically an accredited or close to an accredited investor who you know is is very kind of happy in their job or or is starting to plan for retirement that's eight to you know fifteen years down the road and uh, is looking to build kind of a passive stream of income, um, over the next, you know, eight to 15 years. And, um, that's, that's typically the kind of investor that we're, we're looking for. And you were talking about like your, your team as well. So coming from single family, you said, you know, it was very tough to scale. You're doing a lot of work yourself, but now you've built together a team with this company. Why don't you just talk about like your team a little bit and kind of some roles they play or fill in the gap for you where you, you can't work. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I mentioned that I do underwriting. So one of the first people I'll mention is um, I mentioned that I do underwriting, and I'm I'm pretty good at underwriting, but I'm not the best um, for sure. Um, so uh, one of the guys that we work with on a regular basis, uh, Tim Vitali um, of Upside Capital, uh, also here in the Charlotte area, actually. Um, Tim's an amazing underwriter. Um, does his due diligence, really digs in. Uh, knows how to knows his way inside and outside those uh, um, underwriting tools, um, and uh, I, you know, I I tend to be able to see the potential in a property. Sometimes I just can't translate that into the analyzer, um, and that's where Tim really comes in and helps out. Um, so you know, from our under underwriting uh, piece, you know, that's one place that we've partnered with with Tim Vitale on that. Um, and then another guy that, uh, I'm, you know, one of my primary partners is Robert Muso. He's actually out of New Jersey and he's been doing, and he's been doing real estate for quite some time. Uh, left, a left a very nice, uh, role in, um, the hotel industry to go do real estate full-time, you know, over 10 years ago. And he's had quite a bit of success up in the Northeast in the Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley area, uh, New Jersey, New York. Um, and, uh, you know, when Robert was looking to kind of expand, uh, into the Southeast, he and I, uh, started having some conversations uh, about a year and a half ago, um, as part of another mastermind group that we were both a part of. And over the course of a year, kind of realized that, you know, we had some similar goals, um, had some complementary skill sets and, uh, we started to, we started to go, uh, towards a partnership. Robert's a little bit more in the, um, uh, kind of the acquisitions and investor relations role. Um, that's what he, uh, that's what he likes to do. That's what he, he kind of excels at that actually. And, um, you know, so he handles that for us while I do a little more of the, like I said, the boots on the ground, the asset management piece. Right. And it's gotta be tough to have a, uh, two Tims with V for the last name. You got Tim V, Tim V. I'm sure that gets confusing sometimes in the company, right? Yeah. So, uh, it's, that, that took a little bit of a, a transition with Robert and he, uh, for a little while there, he kept calling us Tim and we were like, which one? And then he was like, well, TV. Okay. Which one? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Which one? <laughs> so, now, <laughs> no. so, so now we're just best in Vitali. Um, so that's how we go about it. Make it easy for you guys. Love it. Um, yeah. talk to us a little bit about, you know, the portfolio right now too. I know we touched on it a little bit, but roughly how many units are you guys up to, whether that's, uh, an active investment or even passive investments that you guys have going on? So uh, I'll, I'll just stick to me because Roberts is changing all the time. Um, yep. And uh, and Vitali's is as well. 
Um, for me, uh, I'm up to, I'm up to about 800, a little over 800 units between passive and active. Um, I love that. Yeah. Somewhere a little over, a little over 330 units, I believe actively. Um, awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the power of real estate right there. You, you can own so many units or have part of a portfolio of your units, but some of it's active, some of it's passive. And you've talked about how you've diversified in a lot of different markets too. You're saying Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia, um, all great states. And I, I know you, Tim, I know you've done your research into you know what states you want to get into, even telling us between, I believe it was Alabama and uh, Texas, you're between two of those deals and you did your due diligence, you did your research, you, you, know, you researched the individuals as well. And then you, you made a decision from there. Um, so love to hear that. I, DJ, did you have anything else for Tim before we head over to our next section of the show? Yeah. So he had, uh, well, Tim, your background before you started syndicating was what? So in real estate or just in general? In general. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, uh, I have a 23 year career in technology, managing technology <laughs> teams and development. So, you know, I, I just sensed that there was there was something there, you know, very process driven person. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you kind of fall into, like you're saying, managing the assets and things like that. But you, you also have this investor edge, which lets you down this process. I love the way you think. So my question is, with regard to the deal structure that you're putting together, well, you know, all the syndications tend to have, you know, some of their basic criteria um, what do you guys do for your equity investors? I know everything's deal specific, right? We always have to look at the deal and every deal is going to have their nuances, but give me a sense of what you try to do in general for your investors in terms of returns and what they can expect if they do a deal with you. Yeah. So our, our baseline, you're kind of talking about our baseline for our investors, our baseline for our investors. Uh, so we target, we try to target at a minimum, a 7% cash on cash cash or sorry, a 7% preferred return uh, with at least an eight to 9% cash on cash over the life of the deal. Um, and uh, we try to target at least a two X equity multiple and a 16 or above IRR. Um, you know, ideally that's somewhere in the range of a five to seven year hold. Um, you know, obviously that's plus or minus two to three on either end. Um, you know, sure. uh, depending on the deal. Yeah. And they that, vary by the deal. Right. So yeah. this is part of what we need to continue to educate our investors on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yep. But that's, but that's absolutely the, the kind of the average that we look for. So one of the big assumptions always, and I, I love bringing this discussion up with people is uh, their thoughts on uh, your uh, purchase cap rate versus your exit cap rate. How do you guys look at these different numbers? And it's it's important our investors understand this because it's probably the biggest assumption we make, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah. So are you kind of asking like how we verify our cap rates or? Well, you, you know, I think your your purchase cap rate is what it is. Uh, right. You know, so how do you gauge what are some of the decisions that go into that exit cap rate? Because that's that's a big assumption is what I'm saying. And it's important our investors understand yeah. what influence that has and how we go about making those decisions. So I'm looking for your insight on, you know, how do you guys evaluate it? You know, how much does it vary by market? Um, so we don't, we don't tend to vary our exit cap by market as much as we kind of go, you know, over the course of the years, we've worked with a number of different syndicators that have been doing this for quite some time. 
And kind of a general rule of thumb is, you know, one, they call it a BIP, one BIP. So, a, you know, 0.1 for every year you're going to hold the property. And the, the one guiding principle that we always go by is we never, we never write in additional cap rate compression. So if I'm at a five cap today, then I'm going to assume that my cap rate on a five-year hold at disposition or at sell is going to be a 5.5. So one bit per year on a five-year hold, I'm buying at a five today. I'm going to sell at a 5.5. If, if the market continues to compress or hold steady, um, great, right? That just ups our returns. Um, but I'm never going to go into, I never go into a deal where I'm counting on cap rate compression because that's, you know, as you guys know, you can't control that. And one of the reasons we get into multifamily value add is because there's components that we control. Um, you know, you, I can control the types of renovations I do that maybe will achieve or that will achieve certain types of rents in the area. And we do a lot of research on that, but the one variable I can't control is what the market's going to do in terms of cap rates or values. Um, so never count, never count on that. So uh, that answer your question. It, it, it did. And uh, so it's that type of feedback. Like I said, I don't think our investors can hear it enough. Um, and the, you know, the influence that that can have on the overall numbers. So I love the conservative nature um, I've heard uh, different explanations. Uh, I like the one that you're saying of, you know, 0.1 basis points or point, uh, one tenth of a point per year. Um, I've heard stuff like in, in uh, you know, areas like Charlotte, they'd actually go, and I guess what you're talking about is 0.1 is actually 10 basis points, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've heard, you know, ranges of seven to 15 in the Southeast. Uh, you're, you're right smack dab in the middle of it. And I think it's a, it's a good, smart way to proceed and to protect your investors over promise under deliver. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it, sometimes it really works out. You know, if, if the market holds for another eight months, um, like we have a property that we closed on earlier this year that we were considering a five-year hold. Um, but we, our underwriting on that had our exit cap at like a 6.8, um, and because we bought it at, a, I think, a 6.3 and we were considering a five year hold. Um, but right now that market is actually compressed down to a 5.3 since we purchased the property. Um, so if it holds, there's a chance we're going to exit within a year and, um, you know, make some investors pretty happy. Yeah. Process. And that's that's some of the decision making on the GP side that we get to make. Right. And right. if we can, you know, deliver the the equity multiple in a shorter period of time awesome yeah. it's great yeah. stuff it, it's a great explanation and uh, i don't think we can review that point enough for our, our lp partners yeah this market's been um you know this market's been challenging um it's been challenging to find deals um it's been challenging to underwrite deals um and it's also you know it's a little from a GP's perspective during underwriting, it's a little unnerving because you really, you really got to stick to that fundamental, right? Um, it's real, real tempting to say, you know what, it's going to hold. It'll hold, uh, especially when you're seeing what you, we've been seeing over the last year and a half, but, and you really got to stick to that fundamental. Um, and, you know, that was a hard lesson I learned back in 2005, 2000, sorry, 2006, 2007. Um, and I just, I've all, I've told myself ever since then, and I refuse to be on the wrong side of that one again. So, you know, just got to 
just got to keep that discipline in place. Yeah, we can't predict the future. No. And no. continuing that conversation on cap rate a little bit and exit cap rate, you know, something we do in our offerings um, is we, we show like a sensitivity analysis chart. So we'll show the cash flow up top because the cash flow isn't going to be affected by the exit cap rate. It's the operations right. of the property. But then yep. below we'll show, you know, here's where we entered that cap rate. Here's an increase, 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 increase. Here's where we want to exit. And then maybe here's one more increase. And it'll show your, you know, your IRR, your average annual return, your equity multiple based on that cap rate analysis. So it's like kind of a little sensitivity chart that we've really found a lot of success with our investors are like, you know, we're really impressed with that because you're not just kind of forcing an exit cap rate down our throat. You're letting us kind right. of choose the assumption there. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and the, and the sense uh, the sensitivity analysis, man, I've seen that in yeah, from putting my LP hat on or my passive investor hat on. I've seen that in a number of different syndicators um, underwriting, you know, what they share in their uh, offering materials. Yep. And as an investor, I love it um, because it's, it's just an, an extra layer of like insight into the deal. Right. And it's like, okay, you aren't just assuming all of this. Here's, here's kind of the data behind the situation or the asset and, and the opportunity. And, and, you know, here's, here's, here's the way we're looking at it. Um, right. So I always really am, uh, appreciate that as well as an investor. Yeah. I mean, you, you just look at that and you could say, okay, you know, for you guys that are more aggressive here, make your own assumptions. You're going to be lower on the cap rate uh, sensitivity analysis here. For you guys that are a little bit more conservative as we are, because we have to be conservative on behalf of the investment, yeah. you know, take your way up towards that. Like you were saying, 10 basis points, maybe 20 basis points annually increase when you own that property. So I, I like yeah. that aspect there. Well, um, and, and, and like you're saying, from a GP standpoint, if you got that chart sitting there, it's real easy for you to go, oh, this is where cap rates are right now. This is where we should be. And and then make a call, start to make a call, right? Like, hey, you know, here's where we are. Like, we're doing this right now. We're looking at it as like, hey, here's where we are. I know we were talking about holding this property for much longer, but, you know, where cap rates are today, this is what our NOI would have to do to continue this va today's value if these cap rates decompress. So exactly. You know, at some point it be, kind of becomes on you to say, you know what, we need to, we need to take, we need to take what we can give to our investors today to ensure that return and, um, and, and, and you know, provide that kind of value to them. Yeah. And like, the, for example, that Concord deal that we're doing, we, you know, we purchased uh, right above 5% cap rate. So 5.09 for inline in place. And then we're projecting to exit in year five at a 6%. So we actually went up you know, a, about 20 basis points annually. Yeah. So if, if that cap rate stays the same in that market or it even compresses a little or doesn't go up nearly as high as we think it will, uh, you know, we're going to blow those returns out of the water. We, we, we like to uh, under predict, overperform, really. Yeah. Under promise, yeah. over deliver. And that's, and that man, that's really conservative. That really good job um, making a deal work, even at that conservative is, is really good. I feel like that's my downfall though. Sometimes I'm too conservative. So maybe we've left a little bit of money on the table or left some deals on the table, <laughs> but that's just that conservative side of me, you know, <laughs> man, I, and I'm with you. I, I, I look at some of these deals that we underwrite and we're like, just, I just don't see it. I just, I just can't get there. And then I see, you know, I see that deal go down and it's, you know, it's, it's 10,000 a unit more than our top number. And I'm like, I don't know how you're doing it. I don't know exactly. how you're doing it. Um, it, it it's just, it's crazy. And like one of the brokers we work with uh, from Cushman and Wakefield, they had a deal in Concord 
And, you know, I was just kind of asking, I, I won't get into the nitty gritty because I don't want to publicly, but he was just saying, you know, that deal was at a 3.8, 3.9% cap rate. And I was like, oh my word, like, you know, that's insane, but it also makes me feel so much better about the deals, you know, we're, we're thrown under contract. So I love that. Love to hear that. Yeah. These, these cap rates, man, they're, they're crazy. They're they really, are really crazy. They are. Well, let's uh, head over to our next section of the show called the Curious Cues. So some sure. questions we're going to throw at you that we give every guest. Tim, are you ready? Uh, I think so. All right, let's do it. <laughs> we'll uh, favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Favorite podcast I enjoy listening to? Um, actually, um, it has n- almost nothing to do with real estate. Um, I really That's like okay. Larry. I really like Larry Hagner's. Um, uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. It's the... Uh, it's the dad something. Um, but Larry Hagner has a podcast out there and it's all about being a dad and and he's actually a, a real estate investor as well. But um, that's probably the one I like the most right now. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Favorite book you enjoy reading? Favorite book? Well, right now it's actually, uh, I got to say it's uh, Who Not How. Um, and uh, it changes all the time. I don't tend to like fiction. I like a lot of stuff that's uh, nonfiction and uh, you know how to do things, uh, but who not how right now is my awesome. favorite. I'll have to check that one out as well. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome? Uh, my own fears, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so self doubt uh, kind of thing. Self doubt mindset, um, and and you know just for folks out there, um, you know I I do I invest in education every year in my own education. You know I look at masterminds sometimes as that investment. And one of the first things I did was look for a mastermind or a mentor that was going to help me get over that mindset issue. Um, and uh, that's, that's been the biggest, that's probably been one of the biggest value adds to myself that, that I've been able to do. So just mindset. Yeah. I mean, it, sometimes at the end of the day where we are our own biggest enemy, you know, we get in our way and sometimes, you know, taking action, like you were saying, investing in yourself, your education and your mindset really helps get over that. So I like that a lot. Favorite non-real estate related hobby. So what do you like doing in your free time when we're not, you know, talking about real estate or doing deals or or chasing after deals? Yeah, for me, uh, it's kind of a tie between travel and uh, uh, working out. Um, I like to stay active, um, but but, uh, travel probably gets a a slight nod because man, I love visiting new spots. I, I last, the first time we actually spoke, I was in Hawaii and you, I believe, just got back from Hawaii or something very yeah. similar. So we made that connection. That was, I thought that was cool. We were staying yeah. very close on the island where we were. So that was that was. Nice. You were in Maui as well, right? Yes. Or no, yeah, you went to you went to Maui, right? Or, or, or no, excuse me, I was in uh, at the Big Island, Oahu. Oh, you're in Oahu. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. You you said you visited Oahu though, correct? Yeah, a couple, it, year, a couple years yeah. back, uh, went to Oahu. This year, we uh, took our daughter to Maui. Yep. There you go. Where, where's your uh, favorite spot to travel to? Would you say that you've been? Um, so I, I really got to say that I, uh, you know, I've been all over the Caribbean, Europe, uh, Hawaii. Um, I'm a big fan of Costa Rica. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of similar characteristics to Hawaii. A lot closer. Just a little closer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot closer and a lot less expensive. Um, so I'm a big fan of Costa Rica. Awesome. I love it. And uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the world of real estate? Find a mentor. Um, mm, yeah. You know, that would have looking back on things, man, in 2006 uh, through 2007, having some somebody there to question what I was doing, to hold me accountable for what I was doing. 
that would have saved me a lot. Um, mm. Find a mentor that's been there, done it. And, um, you know, uh, whatever you got to do to kind of attach yourself to their hip, um, you know, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know mentors can get expensive, 10, 20, $30,000, but they can help you not make a 30, 40, 50, $60,000 mistake. So at the end of the day, they really pay for themselves. Yeah. They, so they pay for themselves like that. And then two, you know, they tend to come with networks. Um, yeah. my network man has expanded exponentially and any, I, I'll just say this, anything I've ever spent on being part of a mastermind or being with aligning myself with a mentor, I've made it back at least two to threefold through partnerships or networking in that group. Yeah. Um, I have yet to be in a mentorship group where I haven't done a deal with somebody in that group. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. And anyone that's listening should really think about that and take that in. That's a great opportunity. Uh, Tim, this has been awesome. If someone wanted to get in contact with you, uh, invest with your company or learn more about Harvest, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So on LinkedIn, I'm all over LinkedIn uh, or Facebook. Uh, again, Tim Vest. And uh, you can also grab me at a Harvest Properties group. Uh, so that's uh, Harvest P is in Paul, G is in George.com and uh, T Vest at HarvestPG.com as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. We appreciate you coming on the show. All right, Dante. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit VictoryCapGroup.com. See you next week.